In partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media, featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is James Bourne. Welcome to the Fourth Estate, the journalism and media current affairs show this week, beginning the 19th of May 2014. You're listening right across the country on the Community Radio Network. I'm in the chair, James Bourne, for the first time this evening. Thanks so much for joining me. Joining me in the studio today, Claire Stewart, uh, currently a freelancer working for the ABC in Fairfax. Claire, thanks for coming in. Um, and we also have Tim Elliott, who is a features writer for the Sydney Morning Herald. G'day, Tim. Hi. Hi. How you And uh, shortly we'll hopefully be joined on the phone by the Australian Financial Review's Jacob Grieber. So thanks so much for joining us. And let's not beat about the bush. Let's get started. Let's get into the week's events and where else to start but, of course, with the budget. If we can get on with the job of fixing this budget, then you and your family will benefit. We all, we all share in more jobs, greater wealth and greater prosperity. But unless we fix this budget together, we will leave the next generation with a legacy of debt, not a legacy of opportunity. We are a nation of lifters, not leaners. So tonight, we present you with a budget that delivers a sustainable future for your children and the generations beyond. Well, as much as it's possible for the dust to settle a week after it's been disturbed, the dust is still settling on the Abbott government's first budget. And I guess the obvious question to start with, Tim, is are you a lifter or are you a leaner? <laughs> uh, um, mm, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a leaner, I think. Yeah, yeah I'd I think, much rather lean than lift. I think I it's a high standard from Joe Hockey. I think most of us are pretty leaning. Yeah, pretty no, leaning. I'm a definite leaner. Um, I... The uh, budget. What one thing that really, really drove me mental about the uh, coverage of the budget, and it's more about uh, the politicians. But Abbott, if I heard Tony Abbott mention the fact that uh, politicians' pay had been frozen for a year, mm. once more, I was going to throw my phone out the window. I was just, I could not, as if that was some huge. I mean, most people I know, and especially people in the media have had their pay sort of rooted to the ground for the last, you know, <laughs> decade. So, yeah. I mean, I just thought that was staggering. Yeah. Selfless of a man on half a mil. Yeah. Um, yep. Claire, the coverage by the mainstream media, in a nutshell, how do you see it? Was it was it solid? Was it maybe caught up in the sort of minutiae, the, the, the colour of it maybe more than the economics? James, I think what surprised me the most about it was there was a lot of speculation on some of the big topics before the budget actually came out, mm. paid parental leave, um, the pension age, which was a huge one, and then Medicare. The budget came out. There weren't a lot of surprises in those. And the coverage of that kept going and kept going where we missed, I think, some of the finer points. Um, and even now we're only just seeing people starting to discuss stuff like the 6% interest rate on HEX, which is actually going to have a real and quite large impact on a very wide population within Australia, and no-one's really been talking about it. So I think... Some of the problems with the coverage is that we've been possibly too far forward thinking in mm. what we're covering. Um, yeah, it's it's been interesting. Look, let's head to the day itself. Um, I found that a lot of the budget coverage circulated around issues key to this sort of media narrative of us versus them, tough budgets, these tough men. We had cigars. Um, we had some office dancing shenanigans. Let's hear a little bit here. You were dancing in your office before you got up to give that speech. Why were you dancing? Dancing? Uh, yeah, you put on a song called uh, This Will Be the Best Day of My Life and danced with your wife. Ah, uh, well, uh, 
I think it was more about our little boy was there and I hadn't seen him for three weeks. So I think that was more of a focus. Because symbolism matters. I mean, yeah, yeah, well, know, the, the unemployed, the sick, the welfare recipients yeah. are hit by the budget. They're, they're not going to be dancing, are they? Uh, no, Laurie, I, they're not. But you it, won't know, be the I, best, it won't be the best day of their life. Uh, no, but it, it, is the, it is the best day for Australia, Laurie. It is the best day for Australia because we are actually getting on with the job of building a stronger nation. Ooh, good save there from Joe Hockey, I thought. Uh. That really frustrated me, actually. I think yeah. that was his one opportunity to maybe move off script and show a little bit more humanity, and yet he still managed to bring it back to the we're building Australia, aren't we amazing? Clearly under a lot of pressure. Um, of course, we also heard from Sarah Ferguson uh, on the issue of lies. It's a budget with a new tax, with levies, with co-payments. Um, is it liberating for a politician to decide election promises don't matter? Well, I don't accept that question. The biggest, most significant promise we made was to fix the budget and strengthen the Australian economy, and we will. And this budget does that. ABC 7.30 host... Ooh, there's a little bit extra there that we weren't meant to have there, but uh, uh, some tough questioning, but also this focus on lies. And I thought that Joe Hockey called Labor out as well for their focus on lies in their response, but should the media have been called out as well for this focus on... Um, sort of misleading the Australian public rather than actually discussing with the Australian public what the budget meant to them. No, I think I think hockey's really interesting the way he's focused on turned it always. He got really I mean in the Herald um uh, Sean Nichols ran a really strong story a couple of weeks ago about him raising money from donors at his North Sydney um offices and he yes, indeed. And he instead of taking that uh as he should have. He got really shirty with us and sent us legal letters um, and then subsequently kind of I've heard that the Liberal senior Liberals have been freezing out our reporters in Canberra, which I thought was quite interesting. So rather than... And so I think hockey's quite interesting because he comes across and always has come across part of his appeal has always been that big, fuzzy, affable, approachable mm. kind of guy, especially for a Liberal... Uh, Federal Liberal Party who aren't known for their warm, fuzzy side. So that was part of his appeal. But now he seems to be really touchy. And so... You know, and it makes him when he comes back and has a go at Oaks for asking that question, which I thought was a fairly f fair enough question, mm. uh, or has a go at Sean Nichols for his story. It makes him seem really uh, quite vulnerable, actually, and quite weak. I thought I thought it was interesting his take on. He should have just answered as he did answer at Laurie Oaks in that straightforward kind of way and move on. Yeah, that people mm. like about him. Um, now let's check if we have Jacob Greber on the phone. Jacob, are you there? I am. I am. Sorry about that. No, not a problem. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, look, we'll come to you now. Um, what we saw in the coverage of the budget was a lot of lists of winners and losers, kind of this almost lowest common denominator coverage. Do you think that that's a, a bad thing in terms of economics coverage? Was it Should it have been a bit more rigorous, and do you think it was rigorous enough? Oh, I'd, I, I would argue there was a, a, an awful lot of detailed coverage. I mean, I think I think the list of winners and losers is a kind of perennial of any budget because, I mean, that, it, it, in its essence, it goes to the core of what the budget is. It's a, it's a document that, that re-establishes priorities or sets a direction for priorities for the country. And by definition, especially when times aren't necessarily as good, then you need a list like that. It's a very important signal about which way we're going to go. Those lists used to be, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, when uh, when those those sort of cash-rich 
budgets were coming out every year. The lists were full mostly of just winners, one year after the other. People would, you know, as a sort of joke, people would sit in the budget and everyone would hear all the gasps as they sort of read how much more money they'd end up with when, mm. it, when you know, Howard and Costello were delivering income tax cuts. So, yeah, it's an important part of any budget, who's won and who's lost, and, and it says something about the country. Even if a winner's list is maybe quite short, like it seemed to be this year, Claire? Very short. So we can tell, yes. Except, well, ballet dancers, apparently, and school chaplains, which is an interesting point. Um, well, I don't think it's a. I don't think we're in a state where you can have a lot of winners. Mm. <laughs> you know, this is not a budget where there's lots of money around to 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 create those uh, those sorts of things. This is a budget where it's going in the other direction. Where you argue about is is where the relative impact of of the cuts or the, the the new restraint falls, and that's where there is now a debate, as you can see. It's a budget in... emergency. <laughs> well, yes, and that's an interesting point. Do you think the media's driven a lot of this narrative of the budget emergency, even though it turns out, maybe not so much by the Treasurer's own omission, that his $121 billion was, figure was a little bit overblown? Was it trillion? Do you, do you think that point was made clear to the public, that we maybe had... The media had maybe misled the public in the in the way that it overblew this budget emergency claim. Um, I'm not entirely sure it was all the media's doing. Um, I certainly think that there are issues uh, that had to be addressed in the budget. I think the budget emergency talk came very strongly and has for a while come very strongly from the government, um, even when it was in opposition, heading in towards government. Um, whether or not there is a budget emergency as a fact, I think the public is still a little bit unclear. Mm. Um, I don't know, Jacob might be able to shed some light on that. Is, is the media clear on whether there's an urgency, Jacob? Well, I think there's some parts of the media that, that argue there isn't one. The, the problem is with the language emergency and mm. crisis. Um, if you're talking about the here and now and today, clearly that is not correct. And we're not in a crisis. If we were, our dollar would be collapsing and financial markets would be saying about us that we're no longer a place to invest in. You know, that, that, that's a crisis. But what, what we are talking about is a fiscal problem over the longer term that has to be addressed one way or other. And you can, you know, the government maybe needs to do a better job at selling this message, but you can do it You can do it kind of starting now and get on with the job, or you can kick the can down the road and then you find yourself in a crisis. Then, then it will be a genuine crisis when, when you can no longer hide. Git, so, yeah. Git, sorry, James, Gittins had a, Ross Gittins and the Herald had a great mm. line about... Um, and he, which is something he's really got on perspective, putting everything real, real reality checks he puts in. And I think one of the lines was about about that emergency, the so-called emergency, was that we're not, uh, we're not, you know, people sort of freaking out and pretending that we're suddenly Greece. That's uh, not right. But um, since when was becoming Greece the most we ever aspired to? Mm. So I don't know. I thought, I th- he he does that really well. But, I mean, my question is how much of a responsibility is it for the media to determine what is and what isn't an emergency? I mean, if we're, especially for straight news reporting, if we're being told one thing, then it's, you know, you report what you're being told and mm. then you go and find the other side. So who's where does the responsibility lie to be fair and reasonable in whatever's being put out? And where does the emergency line start, you know? Yeah. I guess everyone's got to try and define where, where that point starts. Now, look, we'll move away from that for a moment because we have to fit in uh, a token comment about social media. Um, now, you know, tweeting, huge part of the way that people react to the budget. Um, do any of you in any way think that live tweeting um, the budget coverage in any way added to it? Or is it sort of an echo chamber of left and right, uh, people clearly 
um, proselytizing to their own people, or mm. or does it actually generate some larger discussion anyway? Yeah, it's hugely partisan. I, that. I mean, yeah. Twitter's just this massive kind of. I think it shows who can type the fastest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I think Twitter's really well. I sort of. I actually think Twitter's quite well suited to things like budgets because budgets are, um, you know, this whole mass of single measures like taxes and policy proposals and cuts. And so if you take it all on on mass, it can be a little bit overwhelming or even perhaps even a little bit boring. Um, but, um, you know, so people tweet discrete little one-liners about particular aspects of the budget, like, say, the $245 million to mm. to school chaplains or the um, medical research fund or just really pertinent, pithy... I think that's quite a good way to, to take it apart. And that's it doesn't mean you can't go away and then read, um, you know... Uh, the reams of... of <laughs> the reams of stuff that you're going to be deluged in on the weekend or whatever. It's just another... I think it was quite, quite nice, quite good. What about uh, the people that live-tweet actual words? So you're basically reading the budget speech 20 seconds after you heard it on the TV. Is that of any value? It is, is if you're not watching the budget speech. And I think there's a lot of people out there who might be doing other things, who might be sitting at their desk in the office doing other work. Following their tweets, though, rather than listening or watching? I mean, yeah, I don't get so much from the, the actual little in-quotes. Mm. You know, mm. Such and such has happened. You know, no. yeah. It's like a live, live um, football game or something. It's like yeah. a bit odd. I like Twitter for the humour. I think, I mean, that's yeah. it's comic yeah. relief, Something yeah, that can be yeah. quite onerous. Usually. Jacob, what about you? Yeah, look, I think I think you get a nice, quick reaction from, admittedly, a fairly narrow audience. I don't think you. I don't think you know. For all the wonders of Twitter, I, I think it's still kind of narrow casting. There's a you know a certain political group that that likes to get on Twitter. There's a certain view that predominates, uh, and so you're not. You may not be really getting the way this stuff is being read. Yeah, in other parts of the community, and that always takes time and a few days. And I actually think that, that was borne out this week in the way the coverage has evolved. On the night, there was a lot of, the, you know, Twitter lit up. You got nice, clever, pithy quotes. Um, you, had, you had various people buying in, but the the penny the penny kind of dropped on some of the things in this budget quite a few days later, you know, the next day and in many cases only only even today where you get the real response from the public, which is a, a response about how this is a budget that uh, that breaks a bunch of promises and that it seems to be cruel for, for the wrong sorts of people. Uh, none of that was really evident on the night so much. That That's the sort of thing that takes time to come out and you need polls and perhaps, you know, maybe I'm talking here about sort of more traditional media having the resources to go after those things. The, the kind of Twitter response is a, is a bit ephemeral. Mm. Well, you're listening to Fourth Estate here on the Community Radio Network. My name's James Bourne. On that line of broken promises that we've heard, let's hear a little bit from Tony Abbott in this incredibly overplayed soundbite from last year's election campaign here speaking to SBS's Anton Enos. Well, what about uh, public broadcasters, Mr Abbott, another soft target, uh, the ABC and SBS in the firing line? Uh, I, I, I trust everyone actually listened to what Joe Hockey has said uh, last week and again this week. Uh, no cuts to education, no cuts to health, no change to pensions, no change to the GST and no cuts to the ABC or SBS. So some interesting promises made there by the Prime Minister. You can make up your own mind about whether they were kept, and that seems to be the government's line on all this. Uh, Tim Elliott, are these election promises broken, especially when it comes to the funding for public broadcasters? Do you sense this is in any way political payback for 
the Snowden revelations and then the Indonesia affair, the burnt hands. Mm, uh, or is I that question uh, a bit too I, weighty? <laughs> I just don't think that that... I don't know. I just think that's a bit conspiratorial. I, mm. I sort of think that actually there's just a big um, a big pot of money there in um, the ABC and they've gone, you know, lowest hanging fruit and there's a lot of money there and... So no, I don't think it's to do with there's any payback. I don't think they're particularly fond of the ABC and never had no government's ever been fond of the ABC in the last. So no, but I don't think it's a particular get back for a story. Don't think so. Is it maybe foreshadowing the efficiency study at all, Claire? I think it certainly is, and I think uh, I, I I don't think people thought we were necessarily going to get away with no cuts or the ABC mm. was going to get away with no cuts. Um, I, I certainly don't think that people perhaps expected they were going to be so deep. Um, no. I mean, look, 1% doesn't sound like a great deal, um, but, uh, Jacob, do you feel like this is ideologically driven or is it, uh, is it a pragmatic cut on the part of the government? I, I sort of disagree that it saves them a huge amount of money. I mean, you, you know, in the scheme of a $400 billion budget... Um, a bit of a cut to the ABC is not going to move the dial much on kind of fixing the budget deficit, getting it back to surplus. Uh, so you could, you know, if you felt that this government was inclined to be ideological, ideologically opposed to the ABC, and there are certainly many, many people on the coalition side who are who who, who are unhappy with the ABC's perceived bias, then you could probably put two and two together. Mm. Um, like I said, budgets are about what a government feels its priorities are, and uh, they clearly think that uh, the ABC and SBS don't need as much money as they've had. Well, nevertheless, uh, the managing director of the ABC, Mark Scott, told certain estimates earlier this year that he and the audience of the ABC would hold Tony Abbott to his word not to cut funding. Um, It didn't actually transpire like that, and uh, this week he spoke to Radio National Breakfast's Ellen Fanning. Let's just hear a little bit of that. We are in heated agreement that we want the ABC to be as efficient and effective as possible. Mm. Where I think we might part company is how we use that money. We want to use that money mm. to reinvest it in the ABC. How does the government we... want to use the money? Well, I think I think there would be some forces in the government would, that would simply want to return that money to Treasury. But if you look at the, the evidence, uh, nearly 9 in 10 Australians believe that the ABC today provides a valuable or very valuable service. Mm. The Australian public is very happy with the ABC's funding level today and the prospect that we're going to um, rip millions more out and curtail the ABC's ability to reinvest in the ABC's future, I think, would not be greeted with support from the Australian people and I'll be making those arguments in Canberra. So uh, Mark's got almost... Saying that the the value of the ABC can't be upkept with these sort of cuts, Tim, do you disagree? Um, I don't. Having never worked at the ABC or in broadcasting, it's hard for me to say. So I don't know. But I know from cuts at the Herald that it def- definitely does have an impact. Mm. And anybody who says that it doesn't is lying. Um, so uh, you can't take uh, millions of dollars out of any news organisation and expect to produce the same product. And so. Could a public broadcaster or any media organisation absorb those cuts without, you know, uh, cutting jobs, for instance? Is that a likely scenario? I think Mark Scott's been open about that, hasn't he, in the mm. media? He's, he's said that jobs are going to have to go and he's said it will affect services. Um, now, they're yet to say exactly where that axe might land, though. Um, but um, that, that 1% cut over four years, it's uh, $120 million, I think, over the Ford estimates. Um, I might be incorrect there, but it seems like a, a fair bit of efficiency to account for, a fair few jobs. Um, what does fall by the wayside for the public broadcaster, Jacob? Where, where do you think they might actually go if they're, they're forced to become more efficient? 
Yeah, I, I probably have to uh, plead a bit of ignorance on that one. I, mm. I really don't know where they would go on that. It's a, you know, I think uh, I think uh, they're spread across an awful lot of media. So do you just trim away at each bit, um, or, or do you knock one whole thing off? Like, uh, I mean, I think there was always a bit of consternation about them setting up ABC 24, both internally and externally, given there was already a a 24-hour news channel in the market, as it were. Mm. Uh, and, and I think people within the ABC felt that they were having to give up resources to keep that going. So, I mean, I, but, uh, but uh, it could be anywhere, I guess. And I, I suppose um, one of the issues might be with the foreign bureaus. Might, this might have an impact overseas um, for the ABC. Um, and this is separate to the fact that the Australian network contract is being ripped up as part of the budget as well. Um, and if the rumours are to be believed, um, this program, you know, could go somewhere else entirely. Um, what type of value for money do you think the Australian Network really provides to to Australia or, or to the ABC? Is it actually useful as, as soft power, Tim? Well, um, it's hard to... Because soft power is inherently hard to quantify, then yeah. it's hard to say whether it's good value or not. Like, when Matthias Corman had laid out... If he'd said it, you know, if when he said it's bad, it's not it's not providing value for money. I would have liked, um, you know, him to lay out his reasoning when he said it wasn't good value for money because it's is soft power all about, which I understand was the chief reason for uh, Australian Network's existence. Mm. Is it all about sort of um, so that you know people in in Bangkok are nicest to us when we go travelling, or that people in Asia will send their kids here to, to get educated, or is it setting is it making people in Asia more predisposed to doing business with us? Yeah. Um, so there are all these things that are hard to um, hard to figure out whether they've happened or they haven't happened, and why whether they happened for what particular reason was it due to us? I don't know. So. But so Matthias Corman's sort of saying, "Oh, it's not value for money." It's like, well, how on earth do you evaluate that? Yeah, um, Claire, do you have a, a view at all on the Australian network? I probably have to bow out of this one. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's not a problem. But look, all I can say is it's very good if you're a punter that wants to watch AFL in Asia. I can say I watched a lot of AFL while I was in China on the Australian network, and um, there would be a handful of expats who would be incredibly disappointed if if it did go that way. Um, <laughs> Can the ABC actually hold on to the Australian Network at all? Is there any opinion on that, or is it is it gone? Jacob, do you have an opinion? I, I think if you you know if you're making the political case for uh, for for kind of uh, shielding services that go to a domestic audience, that's going to win over a, an audience in Asia. No, no matter what the arguments might be for soft power, I think it'd be very hard for the ABC to to, to mount that argument. I, actually, my brother-in-law was in Taipei last week, mm. and he said it. It has made the news up there that the ABC's been cut. Um, in the, I think on the local English newspaper, they were they're very worried about that. Um, uh, on the front of the, the Straits Times, mm. saying that they loved you know an unbiased source of uh, information and and entertainment. But I mean, I guess uh, unless they want to directly pay for it, uh, I, I imagine the ABC is going to you know go in favour of uh, keeping its audience at home happy first. Yeah, I mean. In- there's also a possibility that it might actually go to uh, another broadcaster. Of course, there needs to be a, an actual change in legislation for it to go to a commercial broadcaster. But um, let's say that, hypothetically, uh, Sky got their hands on the contract. Would, would it be run differently? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> or is that too weighty uh, a question again? Uh, well, I don't know. Jacob, Sorry, did you, you mention the CNN? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm, uh, I would, I'd assume it would be run differently, yeah. Different network, different people running it. Um, yeah, different I guess agenda, so. potentially? Um, well, I mean, if you listen to uh, Morris Newman, the ABC is a, a pot of uh, steaming pinko crazies. <laughs> uh, anyway, so then if, um, if anybody else got their hands on it, it could only be better. Yeah. According uh, to him. <laughs> Well, we, we do listen to Maurice closely on this yeah, program. Yeah, yeah, I bet you do. Um, the other cut that uh, came to the ABC was uh, the disability website Ramp Up. All its funding taken away. It's essentially been axed. Um, it comes in this climate of tough conditions for uh, Australia's disabled. Do you have any reactions to that site going? Claire? Look, I don't actually know that much about it. All, mm. all I would say is that there probably hasn't been as much coverage as uh, you would expect mm. on that. I mean, just in a broader discussion, is, is there enough coverage of disability issues uh, in the country? Does that provide a, a service at all or have we sort of let that fall by the wayside? Uh, the, you can, I guess you couldn't really say there's a lot of coverage of disability issues, no. no. Um, <laughs> uh, is, that, is that a failing of the media? Is that something the government has to actually go out and fund or is it just not not really a political priority at the moment for anyone should the government fund it should media cover it uh i guess commercial media will only cover stuff that they figure people are dying to hear about that Mm. will draw them to their websites to their papers to their tv stations and i think if you're not disabled your interest unfortunately in people who are disabled is minimal and i think that's a really cruel um fact of life and and it's um it demands a lot of maybe perhaps an increase in empathy on behalf of everybody to be more interested mm. i think that's probably right all right well we've covered off uh, plenty on the budget we're quickly running out of time a couple of minutes left before we have to go away but um look we'll just get in quickly uh the march in may protest they happened yesterday um now there was a lot of sort of consternation about the way that the marches were covered when they marched in march um, a lot of people saying... Sorry, what marches? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and sort of so people were, said they glossed over it. And I think that uh, today, and, and certainly yesterday afternoon, the media almost overcompensated their reaction. Um, they sent several journalists out to cover things. Um, and then today we saw a front page splash on the Telegraph. Um, have the media outlets overreacted here? Have they listened too closely to the uh, dissenting voices who are unhappy about not being covered? I think it makes a difference being the week after the budget uh, mm. where there's been so much sort of uh, public uproar about what politicians are doing. So I think in that sense it's perhaps more a, a, a tangible thing to be covering this week than it was perhaps last month. Yeah, right. Month also, ago. I think maybe there's that with the march in March there was an element of, oh, yes, well, they would say that yeah, to an extent. I mean, you know, the, the, I think the media is more inclined to cover something like cover a sustained expression of, inch, uh, of of outrage or I guess the march in March yes it could have been a mistake not for us to cover it more extensively but perhaps newsrooms thought oh well maybe it's just um, a bit of a knee jerk early knee jerk reaction to liberals being in and I, I don't know maybe now that it's a sustained expression mm. of disgust and outrage mm. it's newsrooms go okay this is worth this has got more validity Jacob do you have an opinion? an interesting question. I mean, I, I, we were sort of talking about this today. The the idea 
if you, if you cast your mind back to the last time there was a really tough budget of this sort of magnitude, it was in 1996, and in the lead-up to that budget there was a very large, very rowdy, extremely spectacular pictures of people protesting out in front of Parliament back in the day before they installed all the anti-terrorism bollards. So, and people, if you remember, they stormed through the Parliament House. Some people even managed to get into where the sort of Prime Minister's office were. And one of the things about that protest was, and it was organised by kind of the ACTU and all the unions, it actually had the uh, the exact opposite effect of what they were trying to achieve. You know, it, it discredited the opposition to what the government was planning to do. Uh, you know, all of the pop... And, and that got a hell of a lot of coverage. It was front-page news for days uh, and, and ended up... Uh, ended up Basically, uh, you know, in the public's mind, the the the, the union groups were seen as too extreme, too extreme. And uh, Howard, Howard, uh, well, as we saw today, by comparison, his his polls after that budget were much higher than this one. Mm. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us today. We're just about out of time, but uh, thanks so much for your contributions. Really do appreciate them. Um, that's uh, just all that we have, uh, all that we have, really. Um, freelancer Claire Stewart, thanks for your time. Thanks, James. Uh, Tim Elliott, the features writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, thanks for coming in. Thanks, James. And, of course, the Australian Financial Review's Jacob Greber, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm. 